Hi everyone, it's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode. I spend less time being like, all right, I'm going to hold you accountable for all these things you've done, especially when you're talking about family members, voters, things like that, versus like members of Congress or something. But just to be like, look, the door is always open. And if you decide to change your mind, it's not going to be this embarrassing moment where I'm going to hold it over your head. It's just going to be a welcoming conversation. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Ravi Gupta, former Obama administration staffer and the host of several great podcasts, including Majority 54 and the Lost Debate podcast. He's also the founder of The Arena, an organization dedicated to training and supporting the next generation of candidates and campaign staff. Ravi, welcome to Burn the Boats. Happy to be here. Big fan of you and this podcast and the state of Ohio. So we get to kill three birds with one stone. (laughs) Well, Ohio has been breaking hearts lately. Maybe we could talk about that uh, in a minute, but it's been a while since we have caught up. Uh, What have you been up to? You know, I I like, you know, what you come to expect from me. I'm doing too many things at once right now, but I think in general, like you, I think I've just gotten the sense that there's a, a conversation happening often in the dark corners of the internet that the right wing is winning And I've been spending a lot of time just trying to use media to have conversations, you know, in those places, try to take back the conversation and, you know, whether that's podcasting, YouTube, whatever comes next, you know, I'm building a team out here in New York and working with others to just try to get the message out across new mediums. So, you know, this is the media phase of my life, I guess. Well, you are very explicit in calling yourself a political eclectic. Yeah. <laughs> the Lost Debate site is all about finding that middle ground and bringing people together. And that really is at odds with, I think, the main effort, at least from those in my orbit, which is to create a left-wing ecosystem to compete with the right-wing media ecosystem. We had Dan Pfeiffer on, who stressed the importance of trying to recreate on the left what the right does so well. We just had Stuart Stevens talking about the same thing. How are you finding the Lost Debate Project uh, in terms of generating the kind of excitement that more naturally occurs when you're expressly partisan? It just seems like it'd be really challenging when you're appealing to moderates. I, you know, to use a metaphor, I keep two sets of books. So I have my Majority 54 podcast where I'm just straight up partisan. I'm a Democrat. I speak to Democrats as Democrats and I fly the flag for Democrats there. And then Lost Debate, in part because we're a C3, so by nature we can't be partisan, but also at part of our mission, that's the podcast where, you know, it's almost like primary general election. You know what I'm saying? So like my primary is is Majority 54. My general election podcast is Lost Debate, where I spend more time talking to people who are independents, persuadables, you know, non-Trump Republicans often, maybe some Trump Republicans, but I'm not sure. But for that podcast, we have actually a more right-leaning audience. Our content is actually center right because my my co-host is a conservative from the New York Post, Ricky Schlott, who's also 22 years old. She's actually the youngest person ever to appear on Bill Maher. 
So she and I just take big news items of the day and talk about them the way I wish most Americans would in the sense of just in good faith being like, hey, here's what you believe. Here's what I believe where we'll try to persuade each other. We'll find areas for agreement and all that. So yeah, I kind of get my fix of both parts of the politics there, but I'm still a diehard, even though I'm an eclectic and I, my views don't always neatly line up with democratic orthodoxy. I have no question when I head to the ballot box every year who I'm voting for, and we could talk about why, but like, it's not even a close call for me. Well, I'm curious about the business side of things. And this is going to sound really boring, but there's a philosophical thrust to this question, which comes from my disillusionment, having been in the podcast world for a few years now, at just how much more sticky and attractive the clickbaity episodes oh, are. Yeah. The more partisan you get, the better they seem to do. And, you know, I'd, I'd like you to share your experience trying something in the middle. I mean, is it worth yeah. it? I'm very good at not making a profit. So you, I might be the wrong person to have on here, but we're, you know, Lost Debate is a C3, so we depend upon philanthropists. And I view that as a an effort that has to live outside of market economics in many ways, because we explicitly didn't want to go in and create the clickbaity stuff. We didn't want to chase our our audience and, you know, just deliver like BuzzFeed style cat video type content. We wanted to do what was right and build the audience, even if it took us time, build the audience in good faith and not be captive to it. And so that is only possible to the generosity of our donors. And then on the flip side, Majority 54 is a podcast that does work off of advertising. And for those, like the key is just to reach a certain size from what I understand where you can, I think the number tends to be 10,000 listeners for podcasts. Now this could be too technical for people, but once you hit 10,000, you could start getting the traditional advertisers that people get. And once you do that, you could probably sustain yourself depending on what your budget is. But there are like, there are people out there that are way expert on this kind of stuff, including, um, you know, your partner and mine and Midas who are just very, very good at this, way better than I will ever be. I'm glad you described the audience building the way you did, because that was my ultimate conclusion. And it has really paid off. If you speak from the heart and speak, you know, your truth, the clickbaity stuff isn't as attractive. And I don't think it builds loyalty the way what you're doing and hopefully what we're doing does. But speaking of trying to find that middle ground, I remember conversations you and I had very early on in like the days after the 2016 election. And we're going to talk about the arena now Yeah, in which, you know, you had this hope that maybe we could create or you could create, I had to step away because I ran for office myself, but a yeah. political uh, training and advocacy uh, organization that supported moderates on both sides. W was that- mm -hmm just a naivete about how thoroughly Trumpism had co-opted the, the right? Because that's not what Arena wound up doing. Yeah. The quick answer to your question is yes. <laughs> it was too naive. I think I came in thinking, all right, we're all going to be shocked by this and we're going to see people, you know, and, and I don't want to like totally dismiss people who fought back against Trumpism, but largely those people left the party. You know, the Bulwark style people, the Tim Miller types, the people who just were like Adam Kinzinger, you know, there's a reason why we know all that. You could just name them maybe on one hand, maybe two hands, and then you're done. 
<laughs> with the people who are early on calling out Trump. Now, there have been more and more people, and we could talk about what's happened lately, but by and large, I expected more from the Republican side than I've seen, partly because I spent so much time down south working with Republicans on education issues when I was running a network of schools down there that I think I overestimated their level because I saw them show courage on those issues, and I thought I would see them show more courage against Trump, and it just didn't happen. So then ARENA became explicitly partisan organization, and I really love the candidates that we supported. You know, a lot of candidates that, you know, you were one of them, but also Max Rose, Chrissy Houlihan, Alyssa Slotkin, Lauren Underwood, Haley Stevens, Lena Hidalgo. A lot of people I look back <laughs> you, you on now. You just listed a bunch of winners and me. I appreciate that. Uh, well, we had, we had some two. <laughs> I say none of them had as hard of a race as you did. So maybe uh, Colvin in, in Maryland won, but like there were just so few of them that had as tough a race as you did. But when I look back at those candidates, especially that first group of candidates, they are all Democrats, but they're Democrats who learn to have a more inclusive message and win in very tough districts, a lot of them. And that is what I'm most proud of. I think a lot of our listeners are probably already familiar with the arena. I want you to give the top line bullets for those who aren't, but I also want you to share your bona fides here because I think there's some weird overlap between our credentials in this conversation. Yeah. You come from a Republican family. You worked with a lot of Republicans in the South and Tennessee and Mississippi in education. I graduated from high school in Montgomery, Alabama. Tell us a little bit about your background and your sympathy is too strong a word, but your ability to connect with that rank and file Republican voter, your dad. Yeah, some of the people closest to me in my life are Republicans. So my dad is a, a diehard Republican and I would say a very, very Trumpian Republican. My brother is a Republican Trump fan. My, you know, most of the people I grew up with are Republicans. A lot of my collaborators down south are Republicans. And so, you know, I grew up in Staten Island, New York, which is as much of a 50-50 district traditionally as exists, but also it's an Obama-Trump district. It's a district that has very much moved away from the Democratic Party in the past 10 years in, in a lot of ways that resonate with people who live in Ohio and places like that, and in ways that seem hard to move back, but I don't think are impossible. And so I, I grew up there. I had a kind of rough upbringing, and then I wound up going to State University of New York and really saw the power and promise of our public education system and our university system, and then went to Yale. That's where you and I met. And by that time, I was like a Democrat, but one who is always a little bit like, this doesn't mean what it means today, but we were Giuliani Democrats, my family. No, that does not mean the same thing today. Yeah. And that's just who we were back then. I'm not saying that's, I have to examine going back now what I, what was true about him or not, but that's where we grew up. That's everybody was a Giuliani fan, Democrats and Republicans where I grew up. And so there was like this no nonsense like way of doing politics, like make government work, get things done, you know, straight talk. I was could have very easily have been a Republican if McCain had won the nomination in 2000, I think, and had brought his kind of brand of politics. But I, you know, solidly became a Democrat, worked for Obama after law school or during law school and after. And then about one year into the Obama administration, I was working for Susan Rice as a speechwriter. I just had this calling, right? For you as the military, for me, it was education in the South. I was just like, I need to get out of partisan politics and do something useful. <laughs> and so I was just like, all right, I'm going to go work down South. And, you know, my Democrats were some of my biggest obstacles and Republicans were some of my biggest friends down there. And I had a just a wonderful experience running schools in some really red areas. So then when Trump won, I, I think that colored my optimism that I could 
talk to people across the aisle and we could come to an agreement. That, but that surely didn't happen. Well, talk about your reaction to that Trump victory. Mine was to call people like you and uh, eventually to throw my hat in the ring. You built an organization that to this day is an incredible force for training and preparing Democratic candidates to fight back. Yeah, very proud of the work that Arena's done. And it was, you know, I look back with a lot of pride over those first few weeks after that election in 2016. That's how I met Jason Kander, my co-host of Majority 54. That's how I met so many of these candidates. You know, it's how, you know, people like you and I who were friends, but who didn't spend a lot of time talking to each other in the intervening years got together and started talking a lot. And we built Arena, which, you know, for us, it started just as a gathering three and a half weeks after that election in November. We rented a space in the Music City Center in Nashville and we got like 400 people in the room and we just got together to talk about what comes next. And people like Kander spoke and Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy spoke, Lauren Underwood when she was just a nurse coming out of the Obama administration spoke, uh, Haley Stevens, all these people who came and they were just people back then, right? They were saying, I want to run. And so we did that and Arena turned from a convener to an organization that supported candidates directly and then eventually started running the largest training arm for staffers in the Democratic Party. And now we trained something like 4,000 plus staffers through a, these five, six-day academies that we run around the country that train people on how to do discrete jobs on campaigns. And it's kind of a big tent. So in contrast to the way I was thinking about things in, in the beginning, which is this ideological organization that would advance a certain worldview, it became a place just for Democrats to come together and work together and be a place that's inclusive of people, whether you're a Bernie Democrat or you're a Biden Democrat or you're a never Trump Republican. It was a place for people to come together and just be like, all right, let's train to run candidates who run against Trumpism. And we had a lot of people. I mean, it's it's and now we have our former law school classmate Lauren Bear running it. She's been amazing. And I'm just I'm so excited always to see the young people and the young at heart go through that program and go on to do amazing things. Can we talk about Yale Law for a second? Because <laughs> yes. I, you know, it was a life-changing experience for me. Met some of the best people I have ever known at Yale Law School. But we're talking about the same institution that somehow is churning out people like Josh Hawley, Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance. Like, I get this question all the time. I don't have a good answer, so I'm hoping you'll help me. <laughs> is it just bad luck or is there something about such an ambitious institution that is grasping for credibility on both sides. It's weird because it's also struggled. I might like the past five years, you know, nobody's going to shed tears for Yale Law School right now, but at the institution, and we probably won't go into this, it just seemed like it's lost its way over the past five years also. But the, but yeah, I don't know because you and I are not the traditional person, right? You and I, I came from Binghamton. I came from a very middle-class environment. Nobody in my family ever touched an Ivy League institution. So to me, I just felt lucky to be there. And when J.D. Vance wrote his book, I read it. I was charitable at first because I saw it in many ways myself in his story, which is why I feel so offended by how phony he has turned out to be. Because when he wrote that book and he's like, I'm this kind of whatever. Now it, it it reads very differently to me. But at the time when I first read it, I was like, oh, yeah, OK. Like I came from a, a family that that didn't have a lot of advantages. I came from a neighborhood that in some ways felt like some of the things he, he wrote about. 
But then he turned out to be totally fraudulent. And how do you separate those people? I didn't know him personally. I did know Josh Holly. Josh Holly and I would have lunch all the time together. Josh Holly, I wouldn't go so far as to call him a, like a capital M mentor, but we did spend a lot of time together. And yeah, these institutions do create these people who are running from president from you know the time they could speak. And they were pretty recognizable back then. If we look back, like he wasn't the guy who's going to hang out and like be candid with you. And, you know, when you talk to Josh, he was very polished from the get go. He's not exactly the kind of guy who's a fun guy to hang around with. And he was never vulnerable. And I think that's what I sense now looking back is there were some people like that who just never let their guard down were angling for something from the beginning. And, you know, there are Democratic versions of those and Republican versions of them, but it, God, does it seem like there were a lot more Republican versions of them than Democratic versions. It's the appearance, oh God, this is such a loaded word, but the grooming that they received. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's all these background right? organizations, right? Like these groups that are like, yeah, you're the future of the party. But then there are people who got a lot of that attention, like our buddy Jared Morris, who turned out to be totally ethical, independent people who got all the attention from the same kinds of Fed sock types or whatever, like, you know, like my buddy Kellen Dwyer is like that too, who went on to serve as an appointee in the Trump administration. But by all accounts, like ethical dude does the right thing, you know, served as a lawyer at the Justice Department, like, like, or my roommate from the Truman Scholarship days, Patrick Hovakimian, who stood up against the Trump administration in the Justice Department in the final days leading up January 6th. Looking back, it's hard to to know who's going to be the truly courageous or not, you know? Yeah, I do, because frankly, some of the people who have stood up and yelled stop as the at the end of the Trump administration, well, even to this day, are the ones I would have least expected. The Liz Cheney's, for example. I ask this question, it feels like every episode because it just it's a fascinating study of of human nature and character development what do you think is the distinguishing feature Stuart Stevens was our our last guest and of all people yeah. his he's a good Mississippi boy that Stuart you know I spent a lot of time in Jackson he's a hero down there people love give him. us some insight here what? yeah I don't know him personally but he's 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 beloved down there um I've always wanted to meet him he seems like a great guy but I think you have to believe in something I think there's a core group of people around John McCain who've turned out to be stronger on this kind of stuff. You're like Nicole Wallace for all of their problems. A lot of the Lincoln Project people, like, and obviously they've had some issues. I'm not well steeped in them, but I, I don't want to fully endorse everything that's happened there. But they, like McCain was such a leader to me that like the people in and around him were left with a sense of ethics. Now, I think he could have, like McCain himself was complicated in later life, but I do think he believed in something and he he really left the people who worked with him with a strong sense of ethics. And I think they couldn't shake it, most of them. Like they couldn't let themselves do it. Were you on the Obama campaign when McCain- Yeah, very much. I was Axelrod's assistant during all that kind of stuff. All right, yeah. set the stage. Some of our listeners yeah. aren't going to know what I'm referring to. You and I automatically are there. But yeah. That moment and then the campaign's reaction. Yeah, you know, there were so many moments, but the biggest, there were a couple of things. One was he was in a town hall somewhere and somebody was questioning, I think it was like saying like Obama was a Muslim or something. And, you know, like a whole separate discussion as to why that is even used as an insult or whatever. But McCain 
at the same time that Palin was basically giving a tr- uh, you know a test run on the politics that we see today, he he basically shut down this person and said, you know, like you know, Obama's an American. He's like, you know, we have our disagreements and yada, yada, yada. It was like a great moment. I'm not doing it justice. Now, since then, people have talked about, like, there was another response, which is like, there's nothing, we shouldn't be using Muslim as an insult. But it was his good faith attempt at, at diffusing that. He also decided not to use the Reverend Wright attack against Obama because he felt like it would be racially charged. So he, it was a different kind of politics. You, you mentioned Liz Cheney. Interestingly enough, with her, I never thought I would say this because I, I spent so much of my youth defining Dick Cheney as the most evil adversary that we had. And I and I don't want to let him off the hook for some terrible things he did. But he does also, in a weird way, have his own belief system that he instilled in his daughter about service. And I think Trump was very offensive to the Cheney family. And so I think in that sense, like there's like these little camps, McCain, Cheney and all that. And I, I, those are very different people. I, I don't put them as equivalents, but it's incumbent upon people like us to leave the next generation with a belief system, not just about like, what do we do about education? What do we do about healthcare? But like, how do we even conduct ourselves when there are hard choices? And what does it mean to take the hard choice over the convenient one? When you look at the Stuart Stevenses and the Liz Cheneys, and you compare them to the Josh Hollies and the JD Vances, that's what separates them. Not like some like worldview that it has to do with what the tax rate should be or whatever, but just what does it even mean to be courageous? Is there a way to apply that understanding to the less sophisticated Republican voter, even the MAGA diehard? Because I, I feel like there has to be two different accountability standards for those on, on the inside who who pay attention to politics, who know that Trump is behind the, the orders to put kids in cages. And then, if you don't mind me getting personal here, people like your dad and your brother, how do you mm-hmm. think about, and I say this as someone with Trump voters in my own family, how do you think about their moral responsibility for supporting this person. Yeah, it's tough because you have to treat them differently than people in real positions of power who've done certain things. It's almost like we have to leave the door open is how I see it, right? So I I spend less time being like, all right, I'm going to hold you accountable for all these things you've done, especially when you're talking about family members, voters, things like that, versus like members of Congress or something. But just to be like, look, the door is always open. And if you decide to change your mind, it's not going to be this embarrassing moment where I'm going to hold it over your head. It's just going to be a welcoming conversation. And it takes a lot of discipline to do that because obviously there's a part of me that really, really would love to do an I told you so movement, but those never work. So the thing is, my door has been open and the door of the Democratic Party has been open. And a lot of these people haven't even come near it yet, but you just have to keep it open. You know, that's how I see it. And it's like up to the man upstairs and people's conscious and whatever, you know, belief system they have to hold them accountable on some of the things that they've done. My job is to, especially for the average person, to just be like, hey, you're welcome to come back at any point or just even come if you've never been here. So Miles Taylor has argued very forcefully, and we just had him on too, that they're never going to come over, at least in the numbers yeah. that you need to make a difference in an election. And this was a, a surprising take 
for me that the creation of the forward party uh, isn't about really creating a third ideological lane. It's about creating somewhere for those Republicans to go, even if they do belong in the Democratic Party, tribalism is what keeps them out of it. They're never going to make that switch. And why not give them just an alternative to the Republican Party, given that with the strength of of tribal connections, they're never going to become Democrats. What do you make of that? This is Alex Hastie, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio versus the world makes history fun again. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Yeah, I think we've got to run some experiments, and I know it's really hard to do this because every election is so high stakes, but, you know, we're talking the day that cinema switch to an independent. And it'll be interesting to see if she decides to run, which it seems like she's setting herself up to do it. She's basically made the calculation that Democrats can't run a candidate, which inevitably they will, because how do you stop them? But the Democrats are going to run somebody. And the question is, what does this do? Most Democrats I know, including Pfeiffer, believe that this could be a like with Cinema and any Democrat on there, it could be and guarantee that the Republican picks up the seat, which is why a lot of people like me who are kind of independent minded haven't embraced third parties as much as our like ideological purity would love them. It's because the mechanics of our elections are so screwed up. So unless you're in a ranked choice voting state or a runoff state or something, it's really hard. So I like experiments. I cringe at the consequences of some of them. I wouldn't want those experiments yet to be the presidential race yet, but it's like, you know, I don't know. Like Georgia was a good example of this where the libertarian candidate got a few percentage votes enough to be dangerous, but then it, because it's a runoff state, it wound up not mattering really. So 
Yeah, I honestly don't know the answer. My sense, though, are whether there are people who call themselves Republican who switch to Democratic, there definitely are people who will vote one way or the other. There was a lot of split ticket voting this past cycle, not as much as we'd like, but enough to make a huge difference in a lot of these states. You know, look at Georgia, for example. Yeah, I think the counterpoint is that those voters, the moment they perceive the immediate danger to have passed, they'll go right back, even though the deeper danger is still there, which, in my opinion, is a Republican Party that has grown fundamentally anti-democratic in its outlook and its strategies. And I I think that's where Miles Taylor and the Ford Party are coming from in large. Yeah. And there are things Democrats could do. It's totally local, right? Like one, one Democrat I really love is Jared Polis. Like the reason why I think Jared Polis does so well and he crushed it, like there was so much attention to DeSantis, but Polis ran up the score in Colorado. And why does he run up the score in Colorado as a Democrat? Well, he has a state that is a little libertarian leaning for a democratic state. It's really a purple state. And he's like, all right, what am I going to do? He's going to emphasize an agenda that connects freedom across a couple of domains. So he's going to talk about reproductive rights and freedom. He's going to talk about the right to marriage. He's going to talk about, but he's also going to talk about like when it came to COVID closures and things like that, he was a person who followed science, but he also was pretty quick to reopen compared to a lot of other blue states because he was partially like, all right, this is a state where this sort of autonomy and freedom really matters to people. And he also has cut taxes four times since taking over. And so he shows a lot of people who are skeptical of Democrats that, hey, I could be good with money. And he's cut taxes while also expanding critical programs. He's just been good with money and like making government work for people. So I think like that's a good roadmap to say, all right, what makes people go to Republicans is a question to ask. One of the things that makes people go to Republicans is they associate Democrats with higher taxes and poor government services. So if we can get that right and say, all right, we're not going to become, you know, small government, trickle down economics types people, but we're not just going to raise every tax we can and expand every program we can without any sense of effectiveness. We're going to like have a keen eye for what works and what doesn't and be like really good stewards of your money. I think that makes a huge difference. If you couple that with some of the other things that we do that are very popular, I think that can go a long way in keeping people in our party. That doesn't work in a state like Mississippi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Different different states, right? Like Mississippi's problem is the government is unquestionably too small. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's different than New York where it costs $2 billion a mile to build subway, right? And like, there's like a $100 million staircase in the subway, right? Or you can't even build public bathrooms because they're so expensive to build. Like in New York, it's different than in Mississippi, And I think that's part of our politics. Arizona is a good example, right? Like the conversation around teacher pay in Arizona and the conversation around teacher pay in New York is so different. Right. It's it's why it's hard to have a national podcast sometimes because people will ask like, well, are teachers paid too much, pay too little? I'm like, first of all, I don't think teachers are paid too much almost anywhere, but there's a way that they're being paid in New York that has, it's a different conversation than what's going on in Arizona where we're truly committing an offense to the profession. Do you think the Utah experiment, Evan McMullen, is replicable anywhere else? And just, you know, the refresher, you had a Democratic Party that 
did something extraordinary, which was not field a candidate, knowing that its chances in Utah were non-existent and putting all of their hope on Evan McMullen running as an independent in states where, and, you know, we refer to Mississippi and states where the Democratic brand is so damaged. Might that be a way to challenge the extremist candidates that the Republicans are putting up? Absolutely. Now, Mississippi is an interesting case study because Mississippi actually should be a Democratic state. So it's actually because of the black vote, it's just they've been so disenfranchised. That's a whole other story. But you take a state like Tennessee. I lived in Tennessee for seven years. When I got there, it was Democrats controlled the state legislature, the governor's mansion, and had a ton of members of Congress. It flipped pretty quickly in the Obama years which is an interesting question, what happened there, but it's not going to go blue anytime soon. So the question, and we've fielded some great candidates on the Democratic side in the past few years. We fielded Carl Dean, a very popular Democratic mayor of Nashville, as the governor candidate, and he got killed. And Bredesen, as the former super popular governor, as the Senate candidate, both got killed. So in that state, I do think independence could help. Now, the problem with running against Republicans in some of these states is that They're so tribal that even an independent doesn't do it for them. But it's worth trying. And you may find the right state like Montana, you know, although Tester definitely deserves the chance to run again. He's such a good candidate. But like, you know, you pick up these states, South Dakota, that had a history of voting for Democrats. And, you know, maybe you can catch a state at the right time. Texas is a good example of a state like this, although I think Democrats could win statewide soon. But you could catch a state at the right time where there might be some demographic change happening while you don't feel a Democratic candidate, you put an independent in there. Could work. It takes a lot of organization and discipline. Well, that demographic change is certainly on the radar of Republicans and Republican legislatures who have hit the panic button when they look down the road and realize that they're not going to be able to to win on on policy, win on platform. And you now have and, you know, we got two Yale law grads talking. So this (laughs) this North Carolina sovereign legislature case making its way through the Supreme Court. Is that as big of a threat to Democratic ideals as I think it is? Yeah, I just did a deep dive on this yesterday. So a lot of people I respect point out that actually statutorily, the thing that people are most concerned about, which is that these legislatures will send electors in the Electoral College after the fact and steal elections, from what I gather is not possible given the law that the electors have to be chosen on election day. So for that particular worry, it seems to me unless there's some really sophisticated before the election shenanigans, we're going to be okay no matter what happens. Now, the bigger issue here is that this theory would make partisan gerrymandering so much worse. And it's pretty bad right now because essentially what the theory goes is independent state legislature theory, which is, you know, to recap for your audience, there's this case in North Carolina that the Supreme Court heard this week where basically the state legislature passed these district lines for House of Representative districts that were skewed as they've done in the past towards Republicans. The state Supreme Court ruled that the maps were unconstitutional under the state constitution and then used a special, what they call special master, to draw new districts that resulted in basically 50-50 congressional delegation. And the Republicans are challenging that map or that ruling, even though it's after the election, 
under this theory that has never been adopted by the Supreme Court in a majority opinion called the independent state legislature theory, which essentially says that in the Constitution's elector clause, it says that the time, place, and manner of elections are decided by the state legislatures, not the states. So what certain people have argued, Clarence Thomas endorsed this view in a concurrence in Bush v. Gore, but certain people have have argued that this means that state courts can't rule on their own constitutions and constrain state legislatures. Now, so the, sorry for all the jargon, but all of this comes out as saying, like, if the Supreme Court, which there seems a lot of justices that have tinkered, like who've flirted with endorsing this theory on this current court, if they endorse that theory, that basically means these state legislatures, a lot of cases who have super majorities, can do things like write whatever maps they want, gut voting rights, et cetera, and that even their own state courts can't stop them. And this is a real threat. I don't think it's the threat in the way that the electors in the electoral college it is, but I think it will lead to bad gerrymandering and other bad things happening in elections. But interestingly, Harvard Law School, a professor there ran a simulation that showed that if they endorsed this theory, it actually would hurt Republicans nationwide more because there are certain big state elections cases, like in places like New York, that benefited Republicans. So if you look at the New York case, Democrats would have netted a bunch of seats if they used the map they wanted to use, but their own state court stopped them, right? So all of this is a long-winded say of saying, like, it would be bad if they endorsed this theory fully, but it would have unpredictable consequences for which party. But there's some good people who think that there's going to be a middle ground that, that Roberts endorses that actually helps Republicans, without endorsing the theory fully. I can go into that if you want, but it's what I think is going to happen. Well, I certainly hope it's not a full-throated endorsement of the theory, and I don't care who comes out on the winning side. The idea of state legislatures overriding the will of the people basically on a whim scares the hell out of me. And, yep. and that is what some Republican legislatures have been uh, saying they will do explicitly. Uh, and, yep. and, you know, I can't point to the They're exact. running on it. They're running on it, I promise. They are. Yeah. They are. And, and it's terrifying stuff. You know, part of that, and this has been a change in just the last few years, is the injection of crazy into the political dialogue. And, you know, the moving of the Overton window, the normalization of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Paul Gosar and others. And this may fly in the face of our assessment of, you know, Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance's impact on on the political debate. But the lack of this, God, I got to find a better way to say this, but this elite filter, it used to be that parties filtered candidates, right? Mm -hmm. And they don't really do that anymore. And I think the midterms were a great example of just the worst candidates in a long time actually making it through their primaries and being handed massive megaphones and just driving an insane kind of debate throughout the course of the midterms. You know, strangely, I think Democrats have we we I think we took a certain swing in a certain direction in 2018, but I think we've now swung back now where I actually do think that we are more disciplined now than we've been in a long time. And you, you see that in our candidate selection. There are a couple of states I would love to take back our candidates, but by and large, we pick good candidates. And some of it's institutional, but some of it's just ideological. I actually think the Democratic Party is very pragmatic. When they look at candidates, they're like, who's going to win? <laughs> that's what we ask. Like at this point, that's all we ask. 
pretty much. So, but the Republican Party has, has gone in the other direction. Yes. I don't think the Republicans come back anytime soon. I, they're going to try really hard to instill a certain kind of discipline, but they're too divided. And whether Trump sticks around the scene or not, which it seems like he's going to be around for quite some time, but even if he wasn't, like it's just there are too many forces. It's not the days of old where people in a smoke-filled room pick the candidates anymore. And it's just... It's going to be chaos, I think, for some time now, because there isn't any one person picking these people. Now, it might not be as bad as this cycle. I think this was maybe a high watermark for crazy in terms of like, there's always going to be crazy ideas in the background. Like J.D. Vance and Herschel Walker wouldn't be that much different senators. It's just that Vance was better at like using his sophisticated education and whatever level of constraint he had or restraint he had to hide his cynical politics in in something more appetizing. Although even his version of that is way more sharp-elbowed and I would say abrasive than the version of him would have been 10 years ago. And he only won because he ran in a state where it's really, really hard for Democrats to win. If he was in if he's in Pennsylvania, he would have lost. Yeah. Well, to, to be clear, I'm not advocating for the smoke filled yeah. <laughs> room approach, but I just I feel like there has to be. Well, I, I don't know what the solution is, but I think you see this clear difference between a Democratic Party where we have these debates about candidate quality and electability and temperament. And on the right, it's just off the mm-hmm. rails. Yeah. Uh, and you know, part of that is the way small dollar donations have changed the primary campaign process. Part of that is Trump himself. I don't think there's a single diagnosis, but it has really changed the way these debates play out. Yeah. If they were smart, the Republicans, you know, Charlie Baker would be their nominee or, or Larry Hogan. I mean, they would win in a landslide. They can't help themselves. You know, they get in their own way here. You know, it, it, this this happened at times. There was that series of elections where Todd Aiken and the witch woman from Delaware and some of these really terrible candidates were out there. But this was the worst by far that we've ever seen. Yeah. Well, I know we got to let you go. But before we do, any prognostications on 24? Trump has obviously announced. But do you see any type of effort to unify behind uh, an alternate on the right. Yeah, I mean, I'm not breaking new ground here. I do think DeSantis is formidable. He's somebody who I think is different. I've argued with a lot of Democrats about this because they're like, oh, wait till people get to know DeSantis. They won't like him, whatever. I'm like, maybe. And there's like good think pieces about this or whatever. But he's a movement candidate, which works well within the conservative side. He stands for an anti-COVID closures, anti-shutdown politics, keep the schools open. And then he's also like the crusader on CRT and all these like education wedge issue things going after Disney and cultural institutions for their quote unquote woke bias or whatever. He's a movement candidate and you beat Trump with another movement candidate. And so I think he's got something to work with. He's obviously very popular in a very important state. The electability is going to be on the minds of a lot of Republicans and DeSantis has a case to make that he's way more electable than Trump. And in contrast to Cruz and some of these other people who ran against Trump in 2016, my sense about DeSantis is that he is not going to back down uh, against Trump in these debates. His ego is too big. So I think he's going to get up there. Trump's going to attack him. He's going to attack Trump right back. And I think, and it's not going to be like this phony Rubio type 
attack back. I actually think, I think that DeSantis has a little bit of like this sort of schoolyard brawler in him. I'm getting out the popcorn. Honestly, I think, I think it would be fun to watch. Obviously it won't be fun. Whatever, whoever comes out next, like whoever we're gonna have to run against, like it's going to be a tough race. It always is, but it'll be fun to see them tear each other apart. And the more those two go at it, the better it is for us because it will leave some bruised, disaffected members of their own party. And it will get ugly if they both stay in the race. And I think that will be really good for Democrats. Well, let's leave it on that note, Ravi. It's uh, great talking to you as always. Looking forward to coming on Majority 54. Yes, sir. Thanks again to Ravi for joining me. Check out the show description for links to Ravi's podcasts and make sure to follow him on Twitter at Ravi M. Gupta. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.